welcome to For the Record, the 70s. This is the place where we take a deep dive into the intersection of the music, politics, and culture of the 70s. This is Amy, your host for this one-woman, one-mic show. Today, we examine the evolution of the Chicano movement, the growth of the Hispanic population in America, and how both of these things were reflected in popular culture, especially the music. But first... Thank you very much for your nice notes and to those of you who threw a few bucks into the Patreon trip tip jar last month. I definitely appreciate that. That helps me pay the bills so I can make the best show possible while keeping ads away from your ears. If you want to contribute, even five bucks can help me pay for a month of Rolling Stone, uh, access to new newspaper archives, helps pay for the domain name, things like that. Just head over to FTR70.com to help out with the bills. The Chicano movement of the 60s and 70s was, in many ways, born out of World War II. Returning Mexican-American veterans had expectations of some social and political equality that were not met. There is something about sacrificing your life for freedom abroad but not feeling free at home that lends itself to organizing for change. We start to see community organization in places like Texas, Arizona, California. We see youth leadership. We see the organization of migrant workers led by Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez. We see Mexican-Americans and Hispanics run for office. It is not a coincidence that in 1974, Raul Castro became the first Mexican-American to be elected governor of Arizona, a border state that literally used to be Mexico. Certainly, one thing that the civil rights movement and the Chicano movement had in common was the youth leadership. College students like John Lewis and Diane Nash were out on the front lines of the civil rights movement in places like Tennessee and Mississippi and other locations throughout the South. High school students in places like Los Angeles and Denver staged walkouts in the late 60s to protest things like being punished for speaking Spanish at school, not having equal access to restrooms, not having equal access to college counseling because nobody assumed you were going to college anyway. And the curriculum itself, which was very centered on the achievements of white Americans, especially white male Americans. A difference between these two movements is how they were were reflected musically. There is not a pop music soundtrack for the Chicano movement in the same way that there is for the civil rights movement. I'm not going to reveal a list of pop or rock songs that either overtly or subversively, we're showing support for equal rights for Mexican-Americans or Hispanics. That list doesn't exist. If it does, I haven't seen it. Why? Well, I think the obvious answer is language. Hit records, for the most part, needed to be recorded, at least partially in English. I know. I know. La Bamba. This is not an absolute rule, of course. Look, Richie Valens did, in fact, cross over to the pop charts in 1958 with La Bamba. But let's not forget that Richie Valens was Ricardo Valenzuela. He had to change his name to get his record played on the radio, and his girlfriend's parents 
did not want him to date her. Yes, O'Donna was about her. Consider this. His death in that plane crash with Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper in 1959 was tragic on many levels. One of those being that it deprived us of where he might have taken Latin rock. The Bamba was a hit not because it was a novelty, but because it was and it is a great rock song. Richie Valens was very proud to be Mexican, so it would have been interesting to see what his career arc would have been had he survived. Would he have recorded in Spanish as a rock star? I suspect he might have done that. It is no secret that Carlos Santana was influenced by Valens. Santana was born in Mexico in 1947, and his family moved to San Francisco in 1960. He was influenced by a lot more than the rock and roll from Valens, though. His father played the violin, and Carlos played with his dad's mariachi band. As he got into his teen years, he got more interested in music that was coming from America, blues, R&B, a little jazz, and you can hear all of his influences in his own music. When the Santana Blues Band took the stage at Woodstock in the afternoon of August 16, 1969, the United States was about to enter a decade when the Mexican-American population grew 93% to 8.7 million in the 1970s. Hispanics also spread out from the American Southwest. In fact, the government created the term Hispanic in the early 70s to create this umbrella term for Spanish Americans, although now the term Latino is much more in favor. And oh, by the way, when Santana took the stage at Woodstock, it is also true that very few people there knew who they were. They were well known in San Francisco, uh, where they played at Bill Graham's Fillmore West, and they had been touring with bands like Chicago and Jefferson Airplane, but they didn't have any records out. And if there was no record out, there's not going to be any radio play. It was all about to change after that eight-song set at Woodstock. They electrified the crowd with uh, songs like Evil Ways and Soul Sacrifice. A couple of months after that, Santana played again at the Fillmore West, but this time they were playing to help raise money for the farm workers who were taking part in the Delano grape strike. Do you children of the late 60s remember if your family boycotted grapes? Uh, If they did, they were doing it in support of the migrant Mexican-American and Filipino grape pickers who went on strike and were shot at and harassed by sheriffs and threatened. Um, They had their water supplies shut off. You might recall that Cesar Chavez went on a hunger strike until finally uh, the owners gave in. The union dock workers refused to touch the grapes, too. And so those grapes just sat there and rotted. And finally, uh, the pickers agreed to a $1.80 per hour in wages plus 20 cents per box of grapes in 1970. Santana said that he felt a little restricted by the name and the idea that his band was a blues band. You can hear that 
in their sound just as you could with many rock bands that they were definitely influenced by the blues. But Carlos took his influences, you know, from B.B. King and Howlin' Wolf, but then he added in own touches, his own touches like uh, the conga, which he said got people up and dancing. Now, he certainly did not invent the idea of adding the conga to a rock song. Uh, Sympathy for the Devil uh, by the Rolling Stones in 68 immediately comes to mind, and I'm sure that there are others that predate Santana's records. Still, the percussion in Santana is an important part of their recipe, as important, I think, as Carlos's guitar. It is all on display in Black Magic Woman from their second album, Abraxas. written by uh, Peter Green of the original iteration of the band Fleetwood Mac. Black Magic Woman was uh, Santana's first hit single. It made it to number four on the Billboard Pop Chart in January 1971. That was a really crazy top five, by the way, which really showed the diversity of what was considered pop in 1971. Uh, Let's see here. Number five was I Think I Love You by the Partridge Family. I love the Partridge Family. Uh, Number four is Santana. Number three is One Less Bell to Answer by The Fifth Dimension. Number two is Knock Three Times by Dawn. And number one, My Sweet Lord by George Harrison. I'm going to come back to that number two song, Knock Three Times, in a few minutes. Carlos was not the only Santana brother. 
who made a Latin-infused style of rock in the 70s. So did his brother, Jorge. His band, Malo, was originally called the Malibus, and they were also discovered by Bill Graham. By pop chart standards, Malo is what we would call a one-hit wonder. Suavecito is it. Felix Contreras, who is an NPR contributor, said that he thought that Malo's second album, Malo Dos, was better than the first, and that Malo was like Santana on steroids. If you go search out some Malo beyond Suavecito, you will see exactly what he means by that. Contreras also likens the horn arrangements within Malo to what was happening with the band Chicago. I can hear a little bit of blood, sweat, and tears in there, too. Here, listen for yourself to some Suavecito. like summer to me. Uh, Suavecito was released in April 1972 and made it to number 18 on the Billboard pop charts. That's it. Should have been higher than that. So if the band could make music like that, why was Suavecito their only hit? Uh, Again, Felix Contreras, our NPR contributor, believes that uh, mainstream radio only had room for one Latin rock band, and that slot was already taken by his brother. Maybe. I tend to think that Malo just wasn't the kind of band that made top 40 hits and, in fact, pressure from their record label to do just that was hard on Jorge and his band. And so, you know, Malo made four albums in all, and Jorge did do some work with Carlos's band, but eventually he stopped being a full-time musician. He did complete one more album called Restoration, before he died in May of this year, 2020, at the age of 68. It is absolutely gorgeous, and I encourage you to find it and give it a listen. The group Mosedades was European. In fact, uh, they were contestants on Eurovision in 1973, which is an international singing competition that you might be familiar with. It dates back to the 1950s. It's kind of like an early version of American Idol or The Voice or something like that. Mosedades, a six-member group from Spain, recorded Eris II for Spanish-speaking people. They were not seeking a top 40 record in the U.S., but 
They got a new manager. I presume they got the new manager after they made the record who thought that they should release this song um, internationally. And Ares 2 became a top 10 hit in 1974. They made their American TV debut on what else but American Bandstand in May of 1974. Ares 2 is sung entirely in Spanish. And it certainly did not hurt that there was this wider spread of Hispanic culture in the U.S. at that time, whether it was little kids learning Spanish on Sesame Street or salsa night at nightclubs. If you go back and look at the issues of Billboard magazine from this time frame, you can see that uh, the Latin music scene, as they called it, had its own column. And I took note that in the June 1974 special survey of Latin albums in the U.S. that Mosedades had the number one album in Chicago and number two in Los Angeles. Julio Iglesias, by the way, had the number three album in Chicago. Uh, his time for international stardom would come in the 1980s. Here's a bit of the song that sent Mosedades on a tour of American festivals and theme parks in 1974, Eris 2. Eres tú, eres tú Como una mañana de verano Como una sonrisa Eres tú, eres tú Así, así Eres tú Toda mi esperanza Eres tú, eres tú Como lluvia fresca Besides me, remember trying to sing along to that song on the radio when you were a little kid and having absolutely no idea what you were singing? It's a very pretty song, uh, Aries 2. Let's get back to the group Dawn, which had the hit Knock Three Times in 1971. The vocals for the group Dawn were done by Tony Orlando, the lead vocals anyway. In 1970, uh, he was a former doo-wop singer and at that time a music executive when he was asked to sing the song Candida. Hank Mendres, a record producer, liked the song Candida, but he did not like the demo that was done by Frankie Paris, a, a blues singer. Mendres wanted something that he called more ethnic. So he asked Orlando, whose father was Greek and whose mother was Puerto Rican, to do this song. So Tony Orlando agreed to record the vocals for the song but he was a little iffy about it because he was working for a different record label. Um, and to record this song would have meant, uh, well, he was working for a competitor. So he said he would do it. And they recorded under the name Dawn. Now, I ask you, 
Does this song sound ethnic to you in any way? The stars won't come out If they know that you're about Cause they couldn't match the glow Of your eyes And oh, who am I Just an ordinary guy Trying hard to win me first prize Candida, we could make it together The further from here, girl, the better Where the air is fresh and clean bit of a Tex-Mex vibe there. Well, whatever it was, it was a winning formula, and it made it to the top three. Now, Tony had forgotten that he'd recorded this song, and then he was told it was a hit, and he thought, oh, did I publish that? No, you recorded that. The thing that threw him was Dawn. He's like, oh, I forgot that I recorded that song under the name Dawn. Well, a bunch of uh, fake Dawns, a bunch of fake groups calling themselves Dawn, began to pop up all over the place, especially in Europe. And so Tony actually asked Telma Hopkins and Joyce Wilson, who had their background vocals added in after that, uh, after he had recorded his, his lead vocals, he asked them to join the group and become the real Dawn and go on tour. They were a little like, are you sure? They weren't sure that this was going to be something that was going to be long lasting. Uh, But hey, they liked the idea of going to Europe on tour. And once they got on the road, they realized how well their voices actually gelled. So Dawn, featuring Tony Orlando, eventually became Tony Orlando and Dawn. You could make the case that the group was unique because of its interracial makeup, in fact, uh, Orlando said in 1974 that he was told uh, he was nuts to leave the music publishing business to go on the road with two African-American singers. He said there was no way a black and white act could make it. That's what he was told. I say without judgment that it is interesting to me that Tony Orlando repeatedly referred to himself in interviews as white. And I have read many places that he calls himself a Greek Arican and seems to be really proud of his heritage. So it's just interesting to look back and see how he viewed himself. And this could very much have something to do with his age and the time and era in which he grew up. We know that one of the, I guess we would call it outcomes. I'm not sure if I want to call it a goal or an outcome of the Chicano movement and other similar activist movements was for people who were of Mexican-American heritage or Latin American heritage to actually begin referring to themselves as brown rather than white. Despite all of that, their music was actually really middle of the road. Uh, There was very little, if any, Latin flavor to it. Tim Burke, writing for Rolling Stone in 1975, said, "'The music was very innocuous and very pleasant.'" after years of pop music's striving for significance. 
Tony actually seemed surprised that Rolling Stone was the least bit interested in the group's music, music, but I think that this shows just how incredibly popular the TV show Tony Orlando and Don was in 1975. The music, though, there was very little, if any, sort of Latin influence at all. I'm not even sure if Tony, Telma, and Joyce loved the music. Tony said that Tie a Yellow Ribbon was corny, and Telma said that her favorite of all of the Tony Orlando and Dawn songs was He Don't Love You Like I Love You. By that time, the group had changed labels, they had the successful variety show, and a lot more influence in their material. The song was written by quite the trio, Jerry Butler, Clarence Carter, and Curtis Mayfield, and it made it to number one on May 3rd, There's, it's a pleasant song, uh, certainly not going to upset anybody in any way, no subversive messages or anything like that. Three weeks at number one in 1975. Tony Orlando made a guest appearance on his friend's, uh, Freddie Prinze's sitcom, Chico and the Man, in early 1976. And then Freddie Prinze returned the favor and was on the Tony Orlando and Dawn show. This was kind of interesting because... The show begins with Freddie coming out on stage and pretending to be Tony. In fact, he sang, and he sang pretty well. Uh, Let's listen to a little bit of Freddie Prinze pretending to be Tony Orlando introducing Freddie Prinze. Didn't you notice something different about me tonight? Let's see. Hair? Yeah. Mustache? Check. Tight pants? Everything looks okay to me. You want me to check up under your hood? No, no. <laughs> Checking under the hood is my job. Now, that should give you a hint. Grease. Oil. Grease. Oil. I've got it. You styled your hair. <laughs> Didn't my singing sound different tonight? It's hard to say. Why? We never listened. So there he is making a reference to his character, Chico, uh, who was a mechanic. That's the reference to uh, the hood and grease. 
So it's interesting too, when you look back on it, because we know that it was hard for Freddie Prinze to separate himself from his character, Chico. Okay, now uh, let's listen when he introduces himself. I want to present brilliant young comedy talent, Chico and the Man, one of the truly great and outstanding young men that's ever been my pleasure to see on any stage in America. Did I say America? Nay, the world. Let's have a warm welcome for a man, credit to his race, good to his folks, a great, great comedy genius, Mr. Freddie Prinze. tell the difference between Freddie Prince and myself. Frankly, guys, you all look alike to us. A credit to his race, and then the African-American woman says to the two men of Puerto Rican descent, you all look alike to us. Uh, quite the statements for a good-humored variety show. Tony Orlando did something similar when he presented at the Golden Globes that year, uh, started off by saying, I'm not Freddie Prinze. Chico and the Man aired from 1974 to 1978, but the last year uh, was without Freddie Prinze because, as many of you might know or recall, he died from suicide in January of 1977 at the age of 22. The very existence of the series can be credited, at least in part, to the rise of the Chicano movement and the beginning of this increased awareness of how Mexican-Americans and Hispanic people were portrayed on camera. Uh, you might remember or uh, have heard of this Frito-Lays commercial that had this horrible Frito-Bandito character, things like that. Uh, the show was about a young Mexican-American man played by Prince and an old white guy named Ed who was played by Jack Albertson. Most Gen Xers remember him as the grandpa in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Chico had no family, which was a little problematic as far as the storyline goes, that he would be without family ties. Uh, Ed kind of became his family, even though Ed and Chico had a very uh, cantankerous relationship. This is the theme song to Chico and the Man, which was written and performed by Jose Feliciano. discouraged the man he ain't so hard to understand she goes if you try now I know that 
that you can lend a helping hand Because it's good in everyone And a new day has begun You can see the morning sun if you try And I know things will be better That song is on uh, Feliciano's album, and the feeling's good. It didn't chart. Uh, it was released as a single, and I think maybe it snuck into the top 100. It's definitely part of the canon of classic 70s TV themes. To me, it was really just perfect for the show, uh, but not everyone agreed. Some advocacy groups were upset that Prince, who's Puerto Rican, was hired to play Chico instead of a Mexican-American. They were also upset that Feliciano, also Puerto Rican, wrote the theme song. Feliciano said that it actually hurt his feelings that this would upset people and that he wanted to represent the Latin community as a whole. Uh, Regarding the charges that it didn't sound Mexican enough, he said that mariachi music would not fit, and I think he was right about that. Chico and the Man was a, a gritty show about East L.A. changing around a white guy who could not accept these changes. Uh, mariachi music would not have fit with that vibe. Prinz was hired to play Chico because he had the best chemistry with Jack Albertson. He was already a working comedian who made his ethnicity a part of his material. The show actually borrowed from Freddie's comedy shows, he was not credited, by the way, which were filled with what was called ethnic one-liners. Much of it was self-deprecating humor about being Puerto Rican in the United States. I am 100% certain that Chico and the Man would not be made today, at least not with the same scripts. The bantering that went back and forth between Chico and Ed was, from Ed's perspective, it was very mean-spirited. In one scene, he tells Chico to leave and to take the flies with him. You people always draw flies. You know, I think that... Prince's death is a little bit like that of Richie Valens. I mean, two young, talented people who were, uh, who died. I wouldn't even say in the prime of their lives before they even reached that prime. And it really robbed us of the opportunity to see where Freddie Prince could have taken Hispanic representation on TV. You know, it's interesting to note that Prince said of one of his contemporaries, Jimmy Walker, that Jimmy Walker, who played, um, JJ on Good Times, he made what he called Uncle Tom humor. But Prince did something similar, I think. And, you know, would that have changed? I think it might have, but we'll never know about that. When country radio stations made this open, concerted effort to attract more listeners in the late 60s and early 70s, they hired disc jockeys who often knew nothing about country music, but did know about radio. They were not only working under this order that they were not to play country music that had too much twang or fiddle, um, and they had to stick to the hits. These DJs who were born and bred on rock tended to favor the country artists who had a little bit more of a rock edge to them, kind of like Waylon Jennings, uh, Willie Nelson. Freddie Fender was a beneficiary of this too. Here is a clip of him explaining why he changed his name. Reading part of your history, when did you decide to uh, change your name and take on the, the name of Freddie Fender? How did that all come about? Well, 
I changed it in 1958. I had been recording under my name of Valdemar Huerta with a Hispanic label out of uh, McAllen, Texas. And I had a manager. He'd never been a manager before, and I'd never been a, uh, a recording star before, so we were both. He said, uh, uh, Valdemar, you're going to have to change your name to an American name so that when the, when the gringos put a quarter in the jukebox, they can read your name instead of, of your Spanish name. They won't have a problem with it, you know? And I said, well, how about... Uh, and I looked at the amplifier. It said Fender on it, you know? <laughs> I said, how about Fender? You know? And I looked at the other amplifier. It said Gibson on it, or Gibson, you know? <laughs> I said, no, no, I like Fender, you know? And, and, and um, Freddie came out of the air. You know, uh, the amplifier was Fender, and we put Freddie, and with a Y, it's got the same letters as Fender, which looks pretty good on an album or a promotional yes. thing, you know? And sounds good. And it sounds Freddy, catchy. Freddie uh -huh. has a nice ring. Instead of Valdemar Huerta Garza Medina Delgado El Toro Bravo Smith. <laughs> Freddie Fender recorded Wasted Days and Wasted Nights in 1959, and it was released again on a bigger label, Imperial, it was starting to get some traction when he was arrested for marijuana possession, and that got him three years in prison. He still was allowed to make records in Angola, which, by the way, not a good prison to be in. So he must not have been too big of a threat if they let him continue to make music. He then recorded several bilingual records, trying to get his career back on track. He wrote before the next Teardrop Falls in 1967, and various singers recorded it, including Linda Martell, who's one of the few African-American women to make country records. But it was his recording, his English and Spanish recording, in 1974 that really got the attention of country radio. In March 1975, before the next Teardrop Falls, went to number one on the Billboard country charts, and then number one on the Billboard pop chart. If he brings you happiness Then I wish you both the best It's your happiness that matters most of all But if he ever breaks your heart If the teardrop ever starts I'll be there before the next teardrop falls. Si te quieren de verdad y te da felicidad, te deseo lo más bueno para los dos. Pero si te hace llorar, a mí me puedes hablar y estaré contigo cuando... You know, he didn't even want to record that song. Uh, he didn't think that it was rock and roll enough. Well, probably not rock and roll enough because it was a very popular country song. It was 
uh, the CMA single of the year in 75. He won male vocalist of the year in 75. He got album of the year. His next crossover hit though, uh, he said was his favorite. You can definitely hear more of the rockabilly influence. Uh, he wrote this in 1959, 16 years later, it went to number one on the country charts and it also made it to the top 10 of the Billboard Pop Chart in August 1975, Wasted Days and Wasted Nights. Wasted days and wasted nights I have left for you behind For you don't belong to me Your heart belongs Someone else Why should I keep Loving you When I know That you're not true And why should I Call your name When you're the blame For making me blue Don't you Definitely some rockabilly in Wasted Days and Wasted Nights. You know, Freddie Fender said that he liked to sing what he called the Born Loser records because he could identify best with them. Definitely had an interesting life. Looking ahead into the 1980s and beyond, uh, Hispanic artists would find this broader, I think in some ways, more accepting mainstream audience for their music. I know my mom loved her some Julio Iglesias. Uh, He was already an international star when he released his duet with Willie Nelson to All the Girls I Loved Before in 1984. Uh, Linda Ronstadt's uh, Canciones de Mi Padre, Uh, That was released in 87. This was an homage to her Mexican heritage and is still the best-selling non-English album in American history. Menudo formed in 1977, even though they did not become a big hit in the U.S. until the 1980s. Ricky Martin was 12 when he started with Menudo. Los Lobos formed in 1973, and released their first album, Just Another Band, from East L.A. in 1977. Some of you might have their reissue of that from 2000, which has some great bonus material on it. They started getting more attention with How Will the Wolf Survive in 1984, which has the single I Got Loaded on it. But things really took off with what song? Of course, it was La Bamba. Los Lobos recorded that song uh, for the movie about Richie Valens' life, which was released in 1987. As for the activist movements, they did matter. The youth activism within the Chicano movement led to various educational reforms, including the Supreme Court ruling that non-English speaking students are lawfully entitled to a public school education, More bilingual education programs were implemented following Congress passing the Equal Opportunity Act of 1974, and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was expanded in 1975 
to include the legal right to have language assistance at the polls. Of course, progress is rarely a straight line, and such is the case for people of Mexican or Latin American descent in the United States. At times, it has seemed like maybe one step forward and two steps back, and it is our country's challenge to continue to build on the progress that was started in the 1970s. That is all for this episode of For the Record of the 70s. You can find my source list on the website ftr70.com, and you can follow the show on Instagram at 70s Podcast. If you like what you heard, leave a five-star rating on your podcast app and tell somebody about it. Thanks for listening. Bye, everybody. 